The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. Hear God's word. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. We live in a culture in which divorce has become commonplace, and the statistics, if you read them, are very sad. In terms of the breakdown of marriage and of the family in the past 30 or 40 years, of course, in another sense, there is nothing new under the sun. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is still transforming individuals and marriages. So there is always hope and encouragement in what Jesus Christ, by the power of His Spirit and through the Word of God, does in people's lives and in people's marriages. But we want to conclude our series on marriage by looking at the controversial subject of divorce. There are essentially three views of of divorce among Bible-believing Christians. We could summarize them this way, and the last view is the one that I'm going to be looking at tonight. One view is no divorce ever, period. Another view is Divorce, yes, in certain situations, but never remarriage. And then the, the view that essentially our church takes and that the Westminster Confession of Faith describes is divorce, yes, in the case of two exceptions that Scripture talks about. And one of them is from Matthew 19 here, and we're going to look at the other as well. So I'm 
seeking to describe for you and explain to overview what the Bible says about divorce in a few key texts. And by no means is what I'm saying here all that the Bible says about divorce and to make applications to all of us as we go through this and at the end. In Matthew 19, we find Jesus answering a question that has been brought to him. They're testing him in regard to his view of divorce in what was a controversial area in that day as well. In Jesus' day, there were two major schools of interpretation about divorce, and they both concern Deuteronomy 24, which we'll read soon. One was the what we would say the conservative school of rabbinic interpretation of Shammai. Shammai was a rabbi who lived from about 50 B.C. to about 30 A.D. That was the more conservative view. And then there was a more moderate or liberal school of Hillel, a rabbi who lived approximately 110 to 10 B.C. The school of Hillel allowed more divorce. And so this controversy is going on, and the Jews come to Jesus and ask him to give his determination of it. Now, before we look at what he says, we need to turn back to Deuteronomy 24 and read these stipulations in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Here we read, When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, that's a key phrase, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or... If the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, I mentioned that phrase in verse One, because he has found some indecency in her, is the key phrase, because that really was at the crux of this debate between these two rabbinic schools of interpreting this verse. The conservative school of Shammai understood this as literally a matter of nakedness, as the verse, as they would interpret that phrase. And they took it to mean a reference to immodest behavior or sexual immorality. It was the more conservative interpretation of this, saying that whether before a couple got married or after they got married, if the husband discovered some indecency in terms of sexual impropriety, then he was to write her a certificate of divorce and so forth. The more moderate school focused on the phrase before that in verse 1, if then she finds no favor in his eyes. And thus, in this view, it was maintained that divorce was allowed in any instance when a wife had done something displeasing to her husband. 
So it opened the door very wide to divorce. Of course, it was only one way. A wife couldn't divorce her husband in this way. It was husbands who could do this to their wives. And so in the Mishnah, for example, which is a compilation of rabbinic teaching about the Bible, we find that a husband may divorce his wife even if she spoiled a dish for him. So you see how extreme that interpretation was taken at some times. If she burned the meal, then he could divorce her. Apparently, if we look back at Matthew 19, verse 3, it was a very common view in Christ's day. Yes, it was a matter of dispute, but it was a common view for, as the Pharisees say, asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Many held that view. And so you see that no-fault divorce is nothing new. It was around in that day as well. In fact, it's interesting that Gamaliel, who is mentioned in the book of Acts, a very prominent rabbi in the book of Acts in Jerusalem, was the grandson and theological heir of Rabbi Hillel, of this, who began this more moderate school of thought. So, Jesus is confronted with this issue. Before we look at Jesus' response and make some applications from it, just in commenting on Deuteronomy 24, notice, I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but notice the passage should not be seen as God's endorsement necessarily of the practice of divorce at that day and age in Old Testament time as it was occurring at that time. Actually, this passage represents God's regulation of divorce and remarriage in some way. Notice that it doesn't exactly say that what was being done was right or wrong. It just basically, the direct command there is that a man is not allowed to remarry his original wife if he divorces her and if she gets married again and if her second husband divorces her then, or if he dies. And so it's a warning to the husband not to divorce too quickly. If he does divorce her, and apparently she remains unmarried, he can apparently remarry her. But if she remarries, he may not do so. And then it's stated in 24 verse 4, it is an abomination to the Lord. And also we should say when thinking about Deuteronomy 24, that Deuteronomy 24 does not, in its original context, address the issue of divorce on the grounds of adultery. Why is that? Well, because in the law of Moses, the consequence was the consequence of adultery was not divorce. The consequence of adultery was punishable by death. Leviticus 20, verse 10 describes that. Deuteronomy 22 22. So, in its original context, it really doesn't address divorce for the cause of adultery. Some of the other possible meanings for the phrase in Deuteronomy 24.1 of that phrase, some indecency, if it's not adultery itself, is possibly barrenness, possibly some birth defect, possibly some lewd or immoral behavior short of actual adultery. But even if 
these or some combination of these kinds of actions are in view, Deuteronomy 24 must not be construed as condoning such divorces. Rather, God was regulating divorce. And we see this come out in Jesus' response in Matthew 19. Jesus being tested here and being asked if it's lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, what does he do? Interesting, in verse 4, he says, Have you not read? These are experts in the law. But Jesus, in a sense, overarches beyond Deuteronomy 24 and goes back to Genesis 2.24 to the very beginning and talks about the creation ordinance of God. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus response here, taking his hearers back to Genesis 2, shows that somehow the Jews, for the most part, had thought that the Mosaic law, Deuteronomy 24, for example, had in effect superseded God's original creation and purpose at creation. But that was not the case. Jesus is giving them a clear answer about this. Jesus is teaching that's not the case. Rather, the Creator's original intention is still in force. And the law in Deuteronomy 24 was merely God's recognition and regulation of divorce in light of the reality of the hardness of the human heart. In other words, God was regulating divorce even though there was sin involved with it. Jesus clearly teaches that the fundamental principle that that marriage was intended by God as a lifelong faithful union of a man and a woman. And clearly, he was also, by implication, teaching that divorce, by nature, always falls short of God's ideal. And so divorce is always somehow a consequence of sin. That is not in any way to heap condemnation on anyone who has been divorced. But just as every marriage, all marriages, wrestle with sin, because Christians are sinners saved by grace. Everyone is a sinner. Some marriages feel that consequence much worse, and it ends up in divorce. Divorce is always due to sin in some way. And then we see the reaction of Jesus' disciples here in in Matthew 19 at verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. It's interesting, the disciples' response here showed that they were probably assuming Jesus would have taken a more lenient position about divorce. Maybe it's because we're not sure why they thought this. Maybe it's because of Jesus' compassion to sinners again and again. We think of the text in John Seven and about the passage of the woman caught in adultery. We're not sure exactly why. Their reaction is, Jesus, if you're going to be that strict, if this is really true, if God's 
purpose is that marriage should always be upheld, then maybe it would be better not to get married at all. And Jesus, in verses 11 and 12, basically brushes aside their objection and replies that while a few may have a gift of celibacy, and he talks about different instances of this, which we're not going to go into, he's basically saying God's original ideal for marriage still stands. What can we say just at this point then about divorce and remarriage? First of all, we can say that by focusing on the original design of marriage in God's plan, Jesus teaches the true meaning and permanence of marriage. And this is a message that we need to always uphold when we speak about divorce at all. Jesus is essentially saying that divorce is fundamentally at odds with God's purpose in creation. It is not part of God's good creation. But secondly, I think it's an interesting point that we find from Matthew 19. Jesus' application of the same standard regarding divorce and remarriage to both men and women is nothing less than revolutionary. Think of the context. Think of the society. Think of how Jesus is asked about this. Think about the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 24, and even how then God was regulating, in a sense, the hardness of the human heart. The law of Moses contained regulations and stipulations regarding equal treatment of, women, of men and women regarding adultery. If you go back and read Leviticus 20, you see that adultery was to be punished by death, whether it was a woman or a man who committed that sin. But even though God's law is consistent, even in Old Testament times, and certainly in the day of Christ, a double standard prevailed. There was a double standard for how females were treated and how males were treated. Women were required to be faithful to their husbands, or punishment ensued. Kind of reminds me of often what we see in Muslim nations nowadays, where a woman is treated very sternly, and men are not. While the standard for men in the Old Testament times and in Christ's day was more lenient. Jesus takes a revolutionary approach. Jesus applies the same high standards for marriage to both women and men. It's revolutionary. Jesus sweeps aside these inequalities and takes both male and female back to God's original intention in marriage. A third point we would just make at this point is that Jesus permitted divorce only in the case of sexual immorality. And this is where we come to our text of verse 9. Jesus declares what we call the exception clause. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immoralities and marries another commits adultery. Now, there's a slightly different wording of this exception clause in Matthew 5, but it's stated there as well in verse 32. So twice in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, except for sexual immorality. Some translations describe that as marital unfaithfulness. The old King James called it fornication. These are all possible translations of this phrase. And as Jesus states this one exception, he is actually being more strict than either schools of rabbinic interpretation at his time. Notice that Jesus merely 
permitted divorce in the case of sexual immorality. He did not require divorce. He, he doesn't say you have to get a divorce if sexual immorality takes place or if adultery takes place. He was permitting divorce in the case of sexual immorality, whereas in first century Judaism, typically adultery required divorce. By that time, people were not typically being put to death for adultery, but divorce was required. In this sense, Jesus more fundamentally upheld marriage. In other words, Jesus is being more strict than even the rabbinical conservative school because Jesus was not saying divorce was required in this case. He was saying it was only permitted in this case. And so today, probably many of you know of someone or some marriage where there has been unfaithfulness, but the marriage is saved and rebuilt by forgiveness and restoration of trust and renewed covenantal fidelity in marriage. And that's very much keeping with Jesus what he says here. He's not saying that divorce is required. He's saying that it's permitted. And so he's, he's seeking to uphold marriage itself. Jesus permits divorce for infidelity, but he doesn't require it. I like the way, the way Dr. D.A. Carson remarks upon this text when he talks about these various schools of thought. Carson says, um, on, the under, on any understanding of what Jesus says, he agrees with neither Shammai nor Hillel. For even though the school of Shammai was stricter than Hillel, it permitted remarriage when the divorce was not in accordance with its own rules of conduct. And if Jesus restricts divorce, grounds for divorce to sexual indecency, then he differs fundamentally from Shammai. Jesus cuts his own swath in these verses, and he does so in an age when in many Pharisaic circles, the frequency of divorce was an open scandal. I thought that was a very interesting quote because Carson is saying Jesus is cutting through all the confusion of his time. In a time when divorce was an open scandal, he's saying, and he's cutting through it all, and he's speaking God's truth in a fresh way. Yes, going back to Genesis, but reaffirming that in a fresh way. Why does Jesus retain this exception for sexual immorality? If we take this as a true exception, a biblical exception where there is a biblical ground for divorce, why does Jesus maintain this here and in Matthew 5? Most likely, I think the best answer to that is that adultery violates the one flesh principle underlying marriage. The covenantal one flesh principle of marriage is violated by adultery. So when there is adultery in marriage, in a sense, the covenant of marriage has been broken, and this covenant may or may not be restored. Now, there's not universal agreement among this, about this among Bible believers, but the large majority of Bible-believing scholars, theologians, churches throughout the world takes this as a biblical ground for divorce. Now, if the guilty spouse is repentant, then it is very 
hopeful that there can be reconciliation and restoration. And there needs to be work toward that, and there needs to be forgiveness, and there needs to be a rebuilding of trust. So it's permissible to divorce in this case, but it's not the first option by any means. And there should be this sense of seeking by God's grace to restore the marriage. Now, if the guilty spouse is not repentant, if there's no repentance, then ultimately it is probable that even the most godly and God-fearing spouse will eventually move towards a biblical divorce using this exception clause. Think of just an extreme case in this and and why this, in, in a sense, makes sense. Not everyone would agree with this, but think if a husband has been unfaithful to his wife and he just tells her he doesn't care and uh, she shouldn't worry about it. And he's unfaithful again and again and again. Is this wife simply to remain in a marriage like this? No, you see that adultery is fundamentally breaking the marriage covenant. So Jesus is saying it's permissible for, him, for her to divorce him. Especially, it's evident when you see this extreme case of continuing to violate the marriage itself. So, Jesus provides this exception. But before we leave that and go to the second main text that I want us to see tonight, we have to just address the question that maybe many of you know about. What about interpreting Matthew 19.9 as referring to sexual immorality during betrothal? In other words, we think of Joseph and Mary and when baby Jesus was conceived, and Joseph considered, in the beginning of the book of Matthew, considered putting her away quietly. In other words, divorcing her quietly. And he would have had to divorce her because betrothal in that day in society was a much more binding commitment than engagement is in our society. Engagement is a relative commitment in our society. It's not a binding commitment commitment, if you get engaged and you decide to break off your engagement, you don't have to get legally divorced. Now, betrothal in that day and age was binding, and so Joseph would have had to divorce Mary. So, one of the minority views about Matthew 19 is that this little phrase, except for sexual immorality, refers to unfaithfulness during the betrothal period only. A scholar, pastor as prominent as John Piper holds this view. So obviously, um, he is a biblical man, yet I believe he's wrong on this, and um, it's a minority view. There are other prominent scholars who hold this view, but it's not typical. What are the weaknesses of this view? Uh, Obviously, I'm arguing for the view that it has a wider sense. Well, there are probably, I could give you seven to ten different weaknesses of this view. I'm just going to give you three. One is this. It is highly unlikely that the discussion of Matthew 19 here, when the Jews come to Christ about this issue of divorce, it's highly unlikely that the context was limited to betrothal. The context isn't in view That context of merely being betrothal wasn't in view in Deuteronomy 24, which would have been the basis for this big controversy between the various schools of rabbinic thought. 
and even the state of divorce in Jewish society at that time. It wasn't simply a debate about what to do during betrothal. In fact, one event that most likely was in everyone's mind at the time was that John the Baptist had been put to death. Why had John the Baptist been put to death? Well, if you know your Bible well, you know that it has to do with him condemning Herod Antipas for his his marriage to Herodias. Herodias was, had been Herod's brother's Philip's wife. So Herodias had divorced Philip and married Herod. And certainly that was a public scandal. Think about the president of the United States doing something like this. This was a very public debate at the time. And John the Baptist was beheaded in part because of his condemnation and his boldly speaking the truth of God's word. So the whole context of the debate about divorce in Jesus' day in Matthew 19 was by no means limited to a discussion of betrothal in that period of time alone. The second weakness of this betrothal view is that the very definition of the term porneia, sexual immorality, in verse 9. It's a very wide term. It's certainly wider than meaning sexual immorality during betrothal. It doesn't, can't be limited in that way. So the, the language Jesus himself uses, you'd have to, you have to pretty much go through gymnastics to say, to get it somehow squeezed into, limited to betrothal. And third, what about the lack of this exception clause elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in Mark 10, where Jesus says that divorce is wrong, and in Luke 16, where Jesus says divorce is wrong, you don't find an exception clause. And advocates of the, of the betrothal view say, well, um, it's clear that we should interpret the unclear text from the clear. And we should universally say divorce is not allowed because those texts are very clear. But my comeback, and this doesn't originate with me, is that the lack of that exception clause elsewhere, in Mark, in Luke, we will see it's not exactly there in 1 Corinthians 7 as well where Paul deals with that, is that the purpose of those texts is the the fact that the exception clause is not there has to do with the purpose of, of those texts, and it's not because it was limiting divorce to the betrothal period. That is, it is very likely that in Mark and in Luke, we see a common technique of abbreviating teaching or an account for the sake of making it more memorable. If I stood up here or if Dr. Rogers stood up here and said, the Bible is against divorce, And he went on to talk about how important it is to be faithful in marriage. And if he didn't put a qualifying statement in there about, now, there might be qualifications for when there might be a biblical divorce. If you just heard him say, the Bible's against divorce, then if you didn't know anything about what our church holds to or believes, you might think, well, there's no possible occasion for divorce. You see what I mean? Often we abbreviate statements for the power of that statement, to have it impact. So it's not surprising at all to say that 
that, uh, that exception clause is not in Mark or Luke. It doesn't, it doesn't prove that the exception clause is wrong. The Bible has it elsewhere. In other words, we might ask it this way. How often does the Bible has, have to say something for it to be true? We all know that only once, right? So the, the exception clause does appear in Matthew's gospel twice. So one exception for biblical divorce, we believe, is sexual immorality. But let's look at 1 Corinthians 7 in the last 10 minutes here. 1 Corinthians 7, because the other exception clause is divorce for the case of abandonment. And we want to just look at that and briefly talk about that. I know that we can't be um, exhaustive in our study of this, but look at 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 16. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, before we go any more, let's look at verses 10 and 11. Paul has been speaking about various things. He's been talking to the unmarried. And now in verse 10, he speaks to the married. He's speaking to believers who are married in verses 10 and 11. And here he's essentially summarizing Christ's command. That's why he says um, to, to the married, I give this charge. And then that little parenthesis, not I, but the Lord. He's not going to say that same thing in verse 12, but here he's saying, not I, but the Lord. He's referring to what Jesus has already taught about this. He's saying the Lord Jesus has addressed this subject while he was on earth. And Paul is summarizing his teaching by saying, do not get divorced, but if you do, remain unmarried or be reconciled. Notice, it says, the wife should not separate from her husband. And that word separate, by the way, is divorce, means divorce. It's synonymous with the later word divorce. It's just used for stylistic variation. Because if you notice in verse 11, it says, but if she does, she should remain unmarried. So it's talking about divorce. It's using the word separation to talk about divorce. Because if she's separated then Paul's saying she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Saying the same thing using two words that in that day meant the same thing. So essentially, Paul is underlining Jesus' teaching about marriage and divorce. And notice that Paul doesn't, likewise, as what we've just said, Paul doesn't state the exception clause for sexual immorality here. He's assuming that you already know that. But notice here that what J. Adams would call, there remains an obligation. If there's a breakdown in Christian marriage because of the brokenness of sin, and we know there are many reasons why there are stresses on marriage, there's sin in every marriage, there are problems in marriage. If it gets to the point that a couple divorces and there's not a biblical ground for divorce, there's a remaining obligation there to remain unmarried or else be reconciled. So Paul has addressed the same situation that Christ did. But now we turn to verses 12 through 16, which is classic text for abandonment as the second cause for divorce. Verse 12, 
to the rest, I say, I not the Lord. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is, is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife. Here, Paul is taking up a situation that wasn't in view when Jesus addressed the matter of divorce during his lifetime. The difference here is the situation of a believer married to an unbeliever. Jesus didn't address that. Jesus was speaking in the covenant community of Israel. He was addressing the issue of divorce within the covenant community, assuming that it was two believers married. Paul is taking up this new question now that he's addressing Gentiles, for example, who have come to Christ and they're married to unbelievers. What are they to do? How are they to view their marriages? And he says a lot about this. We're not going to talk about essentially verses 13 and 14 about how an unbelieving spouse is, quote, sanctified or made holy. In other words, that spouse is brought into the influence of the covenant community. There are special influences and blessings brought onto that spouse in that sense. It doesn't mean the spouse is saved by virtue of being married to a believer, but that's the issue. And notice in verse 12, the apostle says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. He's addressing the fact that Jesus didn't speak to this issue. So Jesus didn't address this. So Paul is addressing it. In no way does that phrase in any way uh, lessen the authoritative power of what the Bible says here. It's just as authoritative as if Jesus had said it. So in, in no way does this lessen the authority of the Word of God. Paul is just stating, now I as an apostolic spokesman am addressing this. The Lord didn't address this. I'm addressing it now. What does the Bible say? And verse 15 is where it addresses the subject of abandonment or divorce as we've seen it described. But if the unbelieving partner separates or divorces, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The majority of Protestant scholars and theologians since the Reformation have taken this verse as a biblical ground for divorce. It's typically called the biblical ground of abandonment. If an unbeliever does no longer wants to be in a marriage with a believer and abandons that marriage, if that unbeliever divorces, Paul is essentially saying, you are not to fight that. You are free to let that marriage go. Now, the question is, does this allow for remarriage? Again, there's debate. One of the strongest arguments historically that has been used for the majority view that remarriage would be allowed is that phrase, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved or bound 
If you look further on in chapter 39, chapter 7, verse 39, you can see it connected here. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So this language of being bound and being free is used there in terms of remarriage. In Romans 7, verse 3, the same thing is used for if a husband or wife dies, then the spouse is no longer bound, but they're free. So that idea of in this such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved seems to imply that remarriage is allowed. And so this is the classic scripture for case for abandonment as a biblical ground for divorce. Now, if those are the two cases, I I want to just make some observations about this. One is, it's easy to begin to stretch the meaning of abandonment to mean almost anything. What does abandonment mean? Well, we don't get along very well. I feel abandoned, so I think I've got a biblical ground for divorce. That's not what the Bible means by this. It's a very limited sense. And the church must be careful not to be carried along by a culture that emphasizes divorce for any reason. Secondly, I would say this. There are situations that are difficult to judge in terms of how the Scripture applies. What about physical abuse? It's a difficult area. It's a much more difficult area than I would have thought when I entered the ministry over 30 years ago. Physical abuse is a difficult area. Emotional abuse. And if you don't know anything about emotional abuse, it involves extreme control and constant berating, intimidation, manipulation, anger, all kinds of emotionally debilitating and powerful things. What about chronic drug and alcohol abuse? What about chronic use of pornography? You see, we start to get into these areas that how, does, how do we fit those? Do they fit into the exception clauses we've just described here. Pornography may arise to fill the case of sexual immorality. If it's chronic, if it's long-term, if it causes a spouse not to fulfill his or her conjugal obligations. Or, in a sense, abuse, we might say, may constitute abandonment. Personally, that is my view. I have dealt with enough cases of serious abuse that I have had to wrestle with this and come to the point that I think that severe abuse can and does constitute abandonment. But the elders of the church must seek to, to give wise and biblical guidance in cases like this, and people must beware of simply making judgments for themselves. Well, what conclusions can we draw in terms of applications to ourselves? I know this has been kind of a tightly argued sermon, but let me just seek to bring three brief applications to us. One is this. Let us seek to uphold marriage in a society in which God's institution of marriage is under such attack. Pray for your marriage. Pray for the marriages of people around you. We are all sinners saved by grace, those who know Christ. But there are tremendous stresses on marriage in our society. Let us humble ourselves and pray for our marriages. Secondly, let us be humble and gracious and biblically wise in seeking to help and advise those around us. 
Who do people go to first for counsel and advice? They go to their friends. They go to people like you. People go to their friends to get advice. They go to TV for advice. They go to Oprah for advice. Um, But if you're going to be advising someone, remember that things are not always simple, and they're certainly not simplistic, and it's very humbling And all of us certainly must be crying out for God's wisdom if we are going to be guiding anyone in any way about this. It may be that you would talk about what the biblical grounds for divorce are and seek to explain that. Maybe there's no biblical grounds for divorce. But certainly, often it's going to be the case that the friend that comes to you may need encouragement and prayer in a difficult marriage or in a difficult season of a marriage. And what you say or how you advise or how you pray for them may help them through that and help to strengthen their marriage. And thirdly, let us all learn to seek wise counsel. I make this last application simply because our society is so individualistic now. People really don't want anyone to be telling them what to do. And that's a lot how we feel in the church isn't it, that we're going to do what we want to do. Typically, the problem is that we in leadership in the church only hear of a problem in a marriage when it's a five-alarm fire. Maybe you hear of a problem when it's a one-alarm fire. And maybe you know that you need to be getting advice, that you need to be getting guidance, that you need to have somebody be coming alongside of you and praying and helping you in a difficult time in your marriage. Jesus' teaching on divorce, Paul's teaching on divorce, these exception clauses, uh, they're not the tail that wags the dog. We need to seek to uphold biblical marriage to the glory of God, to the praise of his name.